everyone, and welcome to the Flip-Flops Podcast. I'm Angelique Gay, a mom and a writer who recently went through a major life transition. Each week, I invite other creatives and changemakers on to talk about their own transitions, a time in their life when they felt completely untethered and lost, which as it turns out is completely normal and can even be life-affirming. I met writer Jane Harvey Barrick three years ago in Paris, where I was there to interview authors at the Festival of New Romance, hosted by the French publishing house Hugo & Company. The whole trip was an incredible whirlwind and feels like a lifetime ago. I got to meet Anna Todd and Christina Lauren, the writing duo, and I also was able to meet Jane and her enigmatic writing partner, Stuart Reardon. Jane and I would run into each other at breakfast and chat about her life by the sea. She lives in Cornwall, England, and I was very taken with her and I stayed in touch. In 2020, Jane suffered a series of heartbreaking losses and all during lockdown. She is here today to share her writing journey and her very personal story of loss and tell us how she is finding her way through with the help of family, friends, and fans. Please know that this is a sacred space and an emotional conversation, but there is light. So nice to hear your voice. You have such a lovely voice. Oh, thank you. I think the same about you. Oh, well, that's lovely. (laughs) So, yeah, I started this podcast last year during the pandemic. I was in this huge transition, I felt really lost. I felt really isolated. And so I felt really compelled to reach out to people and find out how they deal with big transitions and big life changes and connect and have honest conversations. And I had always thought of you. And obviously, I wanted to give you time and space because you've been through so much. And then it was the beginning of the year. And I thought, why don't I try? I would love, first of all, just to see how you're doing. And then thank you. I anyway, I could cry. I felt so much for you when you posted that I thought it was. (sighs) I thought it was so beautiful that you shared it. And I thought everyone reaching out to you and comforting you was so nice. It just it, it felt amazing in terms of reaffirming that humanity <laughs> there are good people out there so definitely. I think I think definitely there there are more good people with good intentions than the opposite I really really do believe that I think I think most people want to be kind and to live nice lives and I think being nice is really really underrated I think it's something we should all aspire to to be nice why not I agree yeah. I agree I think kindness is the new little black dress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tell us, tell us your story about, first of all, how you became a writer. And I'd love to know your writing journey. And then we can talk about everything that happened. But let's start. I believe you were a journalist before you started writing romance novels. Yeah. yeah well, even, even, even before that, as, as a kid, I always liked writing. It was the one thing that I always really enjoyed doing, writing stories. And I thought I wanted to be a journalist. Um, When I was 16, I did work experience in a local paper. And I hated it. I absolutely hated it. Yeah. Yeah. It it was was all um, 
oh, cover cover the local school fate and uh, bouncing baby competition. You know, and you at 16, you think you're going to change the world. You think you're going to be able to write some amazing story and, and uh, you know, about famine in Africa and, you know, all the big stories. And it was just unrealistic. So I didn't enjoy it. I tried again when I was 17. And it, and at that point, I, I gave up on being a journalist. I thought, mm, no, it, it, it's not for me. And I went off and did other things. I did marketing. I worked for the National Gallery in London. And wow. That. Yeah, that was What amazing. did you do there? That uh, gallery is incredible. I was, I was in marketing, but it's an amazing place. It's actually built on uh, a graveyard. Next door really? to the gallery is St. Martin in the Fields Church. And the National Gallery is built on what was the former graveyard. And underneath it, there are all these access tunnels. And it's really dark. And uh, you can, the staff can walk around them so they don't have to go through the main galleries when it's, you know, if it's busy. But Did you not... ever feel the presence of a ghost when you were down in those I tunnels? Didn't. I didn't. But I had um, a friend who was one of the warders who looks after, you know, just security. And, and he said they would talk about hearing footsteps when there was nobody else around. So they definitely, yeah. (laughs) I believe it. I mean, when you go to London, you feel the presence of past people for sure. And most places in Britain, in the forests and all those castles. And and you live near a haunted castle, don't you? I do. I do. It's literally uh, a 10 minute walk down the road. (laughs) And uh, in fact, I spent Christmas Day there because my friends live there. And uh, Yeah, I mean, the dining room's got a, a genuine suit of armor in it, and uh, there's tapestries there, uh, and the, the, the double bed is uh, from, the, from the 1500s. The tapestry, it's the, sort of the bed cover on it, very, very delicate now, but it was made in about 1700. Wow. And uh, yeah, it's amazing. You can stand on the battlements and look out towards the sea. Wow. Yeah. So, so you were in marketing, and then yes. how did you start writing did you start writing short stories for yourself or no no I I uh, I worked for a, a charity uh, a children's charity and they had lots of social work projects across the country and they needed more than just marketing materials they needed um, things for kids to get involved with and uh, so educational materials really so uh, I had trained as a teacher secondary teacher so high school and uh, so I started writing materials for these social work projects. And then I started doing some educational journalism as well. Newspapers like the Times Education Supplement and some other um, smaller papers. And from that, I started writing children's books. And I, I did that, moved down to Cornwall. So I met John, moved down to Cornwall. And really enjoyed writing the children's books. And wrote some about my dog. And about the castle and various adventures with pirates and on the high seas and ah, pirates are high. <laughs> you know, army lover, fire that cannon, you know, all that kind of thing. Love doing all that. And then I read Fifty Shades of Grey. And oh. I thought, oh, um, I wonder if I could write romance. But I don't think I could write a sex, you know. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I could do that at all. And then, do you know what? I found I could. <laughs> <laughs> and I really enjoyed writing a good steamy sex scene and it was a lot of fun 
And, um, and from that, I, cause I had been writing full time anyway for quite a long time freelance. I started writing romance and I, I began with a, a fan fiction of 50 shades of gray called uh, 50 shades of Taylor. And it was all from the, from the um, bodyguards point of view, kind of like almost through the keyhole thing of this crazy boss who does these crazy things and uh, put a lot of humor in it. And so, yeah, I went from there and then started writing my own stories. And one of the first was um, a duet called The Education of Sebastian, which in America was quite a taboo story, which I hadn't quite realized because the relationship is between a 17-year-old guy called Sebastian, who's a surfer in California, and a married woman of 30. And the age of consent in the UK is 16. So I just thought of him as a high schooler. And I, I realized later that the age of consent in California is 18. So actually, I was on quite a, a difficult situation. I got some very negative comments from a few people, a very small minority. But in the story, he's within a few months of becoming 18. But it is still statutory rape. So I kind of use that in the story as well. And then I revisit their relationship 10 years later in The Education of Caroline. And those were my first two real forays into writing romance and I just love it and those characters still talk to me I still know what they're doing now and in you know they've grown up um, and they've moved on and uh, and they still tell me what they're doing and occasionally people ask me and occasionally I'll write a little short story about them you know all the characters talk to me in different ways they're all all that noise in my head is is there with their voices telling me what they're up to so did you always have those stories and those characters in your head? Is that how you knew that you had to be a writer? It's more, there was no other option. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's hard to explain, but it was, every road, every path led me back to being a writer. And I didn't know this, but my mum told me, well, only probably five years ago, that she'd done a, um, a, te- a parent-teacher interview when I was 12, which I wasn't present at, and uh, this this Scottish teacher, she said two things, which I always really like. One was, if you read, you'll never be in need, meaning if you enjoy reading books, you'll always have journeys you can go on in, in your head. You'll always be able to take yourself out of the world. And she said, I wouldn't be surprised if Jane becomes a writer. <sighs> and she, and you know, when mum told me this just a few years ago, I was amazed. That teacher spotted something that I didn't even know about myself then. And she was right. And uh, I cannot now imagine doing anything else. So how did you publish your first books? Did you get publishing deals right away? Did you self-publish online? How did you do it? Uh, A little bit of both. The children's books uh, were mostly commissioned by traditional publishers. And I wrote quite a lot. I actually got over. How did you make those contacts? Because there's so many people, myself included, who dream of writing children's books, but don't even know how to get started. So how did you how did you do that? Did you already have those connections? No, not at all. But because I've been writing educational materials for projects and social workers through the charity, I had got some examples of my work. And I was just really lucky that I contacted a publisher out of the blue and sent them some examples of my work. And they were looking for someone to commission a series of short stories. So I, I was just very lucky. And, wow. I, and I got in with uh, one publisher and then I got more work and more and then you get referred around 
but when I started writing the romance, it was it was in the fairly early days of self-publishing now because my my first one was nearly eight years ago now which seems incredible yeah I mean Amazon gets a lot of bad press and for some very good reasons but they've created this whole indie writing and publishing culture and even the language has changed I mean if you look back say 20 years ago people who wanted to self-publish it wasn't even called that it was called vanity publishing and really yeah yeah and you pay people thousands of pounds to format your book for you and publish it and you'd get a couple of hundred copies and you'd hope to sell them. And it was very, very difficult. So this whole ebook world has been created and has blossomed. And there are fabulous writers out there who are self-published. And, you know, it really is available to anyone. It's incredible. So yeah. a huge, a huge thing that happened to you was you met someone whose story you wanted to tell someone who was in the army. Can you tell us that story? Yes, yes. It was very early on in the days of troops going into Afghanistan. And there was a a local young man from Cornwall, where I live, and he was a bomb disposal expert. And he'd spent day after day after day neutralizing um, IEDs, And one day he didn't and it killed him. And his wife was on the national news, but also the local news, speaking with great dignity and great sorrow about him because he was only about 34 when he died. His name was Oz Schmidt. That was his nickname. And she talked about the lack of equipment that they had. They didn't have proper armoured vehicles. They were just in ordinary ones, so there was no... You know, they didn't have the right equipment. They didn't have enough flak jackets, all sorts of things. And I thought, oh, what can I, what can I do to help? I'm, you know, I'm supposed to do something. And because I'm a writer, I thought, I'll write about it. I'll write about the stress that these men are under. So I originally wrote um, a film script called Later After. And it was about the, the price these, these people pay, men and women, and their families pay as well. And what do they do when they leave the military family? It's like their safety net is just pulled away and they're suddenly out in the civilian world, in a world they don't really understand anymore. Because you've got to think a lot of these uh, these people, particularly, well, it's mostly young men, 90% young men, they go into the army at 16 sometimes, at 18, and they have their meals, they have their accommodation, they have their clothes, what they have to wear, they have their hours, they have to work. And so when they leave all that behind, they're in a civilian world that they've really got very little experience of. So my idea was the cost of of working in bomb disposal and what happens when you leave. So I wrote this film script and I was quite happy with it, but I knew there were gaps in my knowledge, massive gaps. I'd done as much research as I could, but I wanted to speak to someone who'd been there. So I contacted the CEO of a charity in the UK called Felix Fund, which is the UK bomb disposal charity, and Felix, because Felix the cat has nine lives. And she put me in touch with a, a guy called Justin Bell, who'd recently retired from the army after 24 years. And at first he was, I suppose, slightly wary of me. You know, he saw me as a journalist, one of them, someone who, a civilian, and what could I possibly know about it? And then he read my script and he made a few suggestions. I mean, one of the things I put in was a radio transmission. And at the end I had, over and out, 
and he laughed when he saw that. He said, no, we only say that with them being sarcastic. It'd be more something like, this is Brimstone 452, calling Alpha 1, you know, that kind of thing. So we put all those technical things right. And then I had to pass it. In the UK, there's Army Media, which is anything, if you're talking with any soldier and they've written memoirs, whatever, it has to be passed by Army Media, which is the Ministry of Defence. You have to do what, what they tell you, basically. I, I sent it off. And uh, because it was quite critical of the government, I got this um, scathing email back saying that they thought I would do damage to um, families who'd lost people and it was disrespect, da, 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 da. And I thought, geez, that is the opposite of what I wanted to achieve. And I wanted to do something positive. I wanted to help. So I went back to this guy, Justin, and I, I sent him this email. I said, if this is true, I will just stop now. I'll just forget about it. And from that moment on, he really wanted to help because he felt that the government hadn't done enough to protect people like him, hadn't done enough to help. And he suffered from PTSD and got very, very little support and pretty much left his own devices in a very negative way. So from that point on, uh, we really worked on this script. And, uh, and then a friend said uh, she would produce it as a play. And uh, we went from there and we was on for a week in London and it was taken, it was in my local theatre down here and, and we also took it to a couple of barracks, army barracks, which was interesting, seeing their... Seeing How did they react? Well, very positively, they got all the insider jokes <laughs> and they laughed at all the right moments. So, you know, it had been a bit nerve wracking. But wow. then it was then it was a really positive experience at the end. And, uh, I'm curious when you were taking it from film script to theater. Yeah. Did you have any apprehension about making that change? Oh no! Now I have to rewrite the whole thing. No, no. You were no, the opposite. I was just completely fired up at the thought we'd actually be able mm. to. I mean, because getting getting a film made. I mean, it's very very expensive, and your chances are slim. But this was something real. This was going to really happen. And my friend said, I will produce it. You write the script, I will make it happen. And, and I love did. that. Yeah. So I, you I were just... ready to just do another rewrite? Absolutely. I would have, I would have done a thousand if you needed a thousand. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Just to get the work out there. And, and when I did, when I went to the first rehearsal, she was really, really nervous because we've been friends for a very long time. And she thought, if Jane and Justin hate it, you know, it could affect our friendship. And I, I was quite surprised when she said that to me later because I didn't, you know, nothing would have affected the friendship in, in, my, in my view, but that's how she felt. And watching the first rehearsal, I realised that the script is only a third of it. The other third is the actors and the other third is the direction. And seeing all the pieces come together was amazing. I have seeing full body shivers interpreting right now. Our words. I have full body shivers as you're telling me this. <laughs> it I really just think it's so incredible. incredible. It was incredible, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 then, and then I suppose there was a fourth set of reactions as well, which took the script down to about 25% of it, seeing with an audience, seeing their reactions, hearing them laughing or shocked, or that put a whole nother spin on it as well. Hearing sharp intakes of breath at the right moments, and, and then at the end, people standing and clapping. It was just, it, yeah. There's nothing well, like it, that. It was... I was saying there's nothing like theatre. There's nothing yes. like having that immediate reaction. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, it's great getting reviews of books. It's great getting people email you. But when you're actually there and you see it. And the other thing was for the week it was on in London, I decided I wanted to go up and see it every night. 
And that was incredible as well because it changed so much every mm-hmm. night. The way the actors worked, the way the audience worked, it was different every single time. And I found that amazing as well. So, yeah, it was a great experience. And wow. uh, Justin and I became really, really good friends to the point where his, he's got two children and his daughter, Beth, she thinks I'm an aunt. She thinks I'm his sister, <laughs> which is great. But there was uh, a real price to pay for what he did. And he, when he'd been in um, Afghanistan, his office, if you like, was an old, I don't we call them, they called it an, uh, an ISO building, which is like one of these portable, porter cabin type things. And at some point it had been hit by a uranium tipped rocket and basically it was radioactive. And all the guys who used that office um, in the last few years, they've all died of cancer, different cancers. And he died in 2019. Uh, and that was uh, the beginning of a whole, unfortunately, a whole series of, of funerals that I've been to in the last couple of years. Uh, so it's, it was a start of a difficult time. But like I say, his, his sweet little girl, she thinks I'm, his, I'm auntie, I'm auntie Jane. And uh, his wife is a really, really good friend of mine. In fact, they're coming down next summer to stay with me and we're going to go to the beach and have a great time. Wow. <laughs> Um, Justin, he helped me with um, two books I wrote about a bomb disposal officer, which was TikTok and Bombshell, and he did mm-hmm. the actual um, technical stuff, so he helped me on that. And I published his memoirs, um, which I've been working with his wife on for the last couple <gasps> of years, wow. in December. So it was actually really good, because it was, it was quite difficult to do, because I wasn't always sure what the, the narrative, you know, the, the um, timeline, because he was, he was in the SAS for a while as well so we had to sort of fit everything around and I got slammed by army media again I had to take out loads of stuff Hmm. so yeah but um, Stuart our dear dear Stuart Reardon he is (laughs) the nicest nicest guy and I know a lot of women know him from being uh, a cover model that's how I met him originally we were both doing an event in Edinburgh and he was there wearing just a kilt and a big smile (laughs) (laughs) no bless him and i i find beautiful people really intimidating but i was i was doing uh i had a collection tin with me and i was i was raising money for the felix fund charity the bomb disposal charity and i wanted to get a photograph of him with the tin you know for social media and uh, i had my friend there sheena lumsden who's from edinburgh and I was saying, Sheena, can you go and ask him if he'll take a photograph? And, and she said, well, you go. I said, no, no, you go. No, no, you go. You go. <laughs> anyway, finally, I said, look, I have to sign some books. You've got to go. So she did. She went over and she said, yeah. He said, yes, um, he'll take a photograph with you. I thought, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't want a photograph with me. I just wanted him with a tin. Anyway, I went and I talked to him and he was lovely and it was absolutely fine. And afterwards, I thought, what was I worried about? He's so nice. And then we met again a, a year later, maybe in Dublin, in Ireland, for another book event. And he, he donated some, I do online book auctions once a year of signed author books that they donate to me for Felix Fund. And he donated some of his calendar. So I was thanking him for that. And two women came up and they wanted to have their photograph taken with him. Well, why wouldn't you? And, uh, <laughs> and he put his arm around one of them. And then he went to put his other arm around the second woman. And I saw him flinch. And I knew he was still playing rugby professionally at the time. And I asked him afterwards, are you injured? And he said, oh, I've just had surgery on my shoulder. I'll never play rugby again. And I I had this, 
And I could see it on his face that something he'd been doing his whole adult life, he was no longer able to do. And he'd wanted to have one more year before he did retire from rugby. And he wasn't going to get it because his shoulder wasn't going to take it. And, uh, and I, I, felt, I felt really, I felt for him. And I went home and I started thinking, do you know what, That's gonna, that would make a great story. You know, that, that, like you're talking about transition, that moment when what you thought you were getting out of life is taken away from you suddenly, overnight, in, in, in a split second. And you have to go in a different direction. You have to, or, or you just stop. You have to change. I thought it'd make a great story, but I thought, well, it's not my story. It's his story. And I thought, I wonder if he'd want to write a book about that. And I sort of, and I put it on the back burner. I thought, no, he won't want to. He's got too many things on. He's doing his fitness training and he's modeling and da, 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 da. And, but the idea wouldn't go away. It kept niggling at me. It kept giving me these little nudges. Like, yeah, it'd make a really good story. No, he wouldn't want to do it. Yes, yes, you should really do it. <laughs> In the end, I contacted him. And he was going through, like I say, transition in his life. And he decided to say yes to everything that challenged him. So I said, do you want to write a book? He said, yes. And I said, oh, are you, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> and we, we wrote a book sort of loosely based on aspects of his life, but with a sort of romance element as well. So he's actually getting, in, well, he's engaged to Emma, who's absolutely gorgeous. And they've got a little boy now as well. But at the time, we, we sort of invented a, the female character and the rest was based on his life. And it's called Undefeated. And it was about a man who is not going to be defeated by life. He is, you know, broken and bruised as he is. He is coming back. And that was very much Stuart's story. And it was just going to be one book. And we enjoyed writing together so much, we decided to write another one. But, you know, he's, he's not a professional writer. So we had to invent different ways of working and different things that would work for him. Because I couldn't just say, go and write, go and write a chapter when he'd never done any writing. So we would talk about the plot. We would talk about the characters. He'd talk to me about playing rugby professionally. And sometimes we would literally write out a chapter. I'd type it while we'd just talk it out. But also he did me these hilarious voice messages. <laughs> and I've got one here, actually, that I, I kept because it's just brilliant. And he basically acts it out for you. Uh, so this is towards the end of the book where the character is playing in a in a in the rugby world cup final oh i love that you're sharing this thank you <laughs> okay i'll go this one uh, the clock's ticking away uh england are down by four the ball goes wide oh it passes to johnny then to jimmy it lands to nick's hand nick's going down the wing he's running he beats one beats two beats three. Oh, chips the ball back he's regained it is he gonna score is he gonna score oh yes yeah. <laughs> You can feel him reliving it. Exactly. Exactly that. I mean, he's played in the biggest crowd he played in front of was 80,000 people. He said you, you couldn't even hear, you couldn't even hear the noise was so incredible walking out onto a field with that many people and fireworks going off and drums and, you know, people chanting and singing. So you can't, and you could almost feel it rather than hear it. It was so loud. And I hope all that comes across in the book, but it was incredible writing together. And we enjoyed it so much. We did a, um, a sequel called Model Boyfriend based on his career going into modeling. 
And once we'd done that, we sort of thought, well, you know, what else would we like to do? And we were sitting on, um, we'd gone to the first book bonanza in Denver. And we were sitting on an aeroplane uh, waiting on a long flight back to the East Coast. And we came up with the idea for a romantic comedy because um, I'm a partial to the odd bar of chocolate. And <laughs> spends a lot of time in the gym. So we called it Gym or Chocolate. And it, it's about a woman who's uh, very confident in herself with her curves and her, and her plus size who wins a membership to an exclusive gym. And he's the sort of, Stuart plays the sort of dour Brit who doesn't really want to get involved with this, this um, loud, brassy New Yorker. And of course, it ends up being um, a great romance. And again, we had so much fun writing it. It's ended up being a three book series. And we're just thinking now about what we're going to do next. Probably another romantic comedy. But, you know, during all this, um, he, he's become a friend, but he became an even better friend when I really needed someone. And um, as you know, Angelique, I, 2020 was a ah, bad year for everybody all around the world. It was a bad year. And it started for me a bad year in uh, January, January 20th, when my lovely little little Jack Russell called Pip, who was nearly 15, had to be put down. She was very ill. She had kidney failure. And uh, that was a very difficult time. The vet came to the house and, um, and she was in my arms. <laughs> Yeah. So anyone who's ever loved a pet will know exactly how that feels. And then um, lockdown started and my mother, um, who was getting quite frail, had been in a care home for some years and um, I couldn't visit her. I'd been visiting her every other day for four years and suddenly I couldn't see her at all and I couldn't take her out and Talking to her on the phone was difficult because she didn't hear very well and found telephones difficult. And um, she had a fall and I couldn't go to the hospital to see her. And when she came out of the hospital, I couldn't see her because they just, you know, her care homes were completely locked down. And um, she died. <laughs> and um, I was, um, then I was allowed to go and see her and say goodbye, which I did. And um, my brother came down and we had a very small funeral because people weren't really allowed to. So it was just my brother, his wife, my husband, John, and my little nephew, Ernie. He was only a year old at the time. And uh, so that was difficult. And, and then two weeks after my mum's funeral, John died very suddenly. He'd had heart trouble for years. But I, I'd um, gone out for a walk and I came home and the house was quiet. It was really quiet. And um, I just knew, walking in the door, I just knew. And I went upstairs and he looked like he was asleep, but he'd gone. And uh, I don't remember a lot, but I called an ambulance, even though I knew he'd gone because I had to do something. And they came and, and the, and the um, emergency operator was trying to get me to do CPR and I was trying to, but I knew he'd gone. I kept saying, he's gone, he's gone. And she said, no, you've got to keep going, you've got to keep going. So I did. And then but the ambulance was really quick, maybe 10 minutes. And I'd, I'd called my neighbours as well. And, 
and they worked on him for 45 minutes and I was begging them, please stop. He's gone. Because I kept thinking, if they bring him back now, you know, it, it's just... But they didn't. And uh, um, the same funeral directors who'd looked after my mum came and they were really, really nice, really respectful. And so suddenly from this really busy life with... Um, you know, a mother I was seeing every other day and taking out every other day and trying to look after my husband and trying to write and walking my dog. There was just so much time and so much quietness. And it, it was... My brother came down the next day um, I mean, he lives in London, so he's about 300 miles away, and they came down, and he is fabulous, my big brother. <laughs> and his wife, Catherine, is just the best sister-in-law. Of course, having a little one around, little Ernie, who was two there. I'm <laughs> uh, sorry, 18 months, 18 months. Um, you know, you can't be too down with a, with a little one around and getting lots of... Uh, Lovely little um, squishy cuddles and squishy kisses, <laughs> and uh, and that helped a lot. And friends were very good, and neighbours were very good, and uh, and it's you know having to tell people and having to tell people over and over and over again is awful because their shock is just it just and you sort of almost end up apologising for telling them. And in the end, I'm afraid I just started texting people because I just couldn't take it anymore. I just couldn't take up phoning someone else. I mean, when I phoned up John's sister, she just screamed down the phone at me. I mean, not at me, but she was just screaming, you know. And and then her husband took over and he was almost as bad. And, and I just kept saying over and over, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So I just started texting people. And... Uh, um, um, one of the first people to offer to come down was Stuart. And he did come that summer with Emma and uh, his puppy Rocket, a little <laughs> dog. And, uh, you know, he's a really good cook and he cooked every day and they looked after me and we went out. And he has that calmness and kindness. And he kind of notices when you need something. Like when we travel together, he notices and he carries my bags for me and, you know, gives me the best seat and all that kind of thing. He's a really, really good guy. And uh, like I say, great neighbours. And neighbours I hadn't even really talked to that much offered to help. And one of the things I learned, it's, you know, because you, you, you almost, part of you saying, no, you don't want any help. You don't want, you don't want people around you. And I force myself, if anyone offered to help, I force myself to say yes. I would like you to help me and I would let them help me because when, you know, people are very, it's very difficult to talk about bereavement. Nobody knows what to say. Nobody. And you don't, you know, why should you expect them to, you know, that you're the, it's your bereavement and, you know, so I made myself say yes. And I made myself, um, you know, talk to people over the garden fence line because, of course, we're still in lockdown. Still, yeah. couldn't, still couldn't go to a cafe or a whatever. In fact, um, um, when we had John's funeral, uh, I, th I think I, I know I broke some lockdown rules because I just said to people, if you want to come back and have a drink in the garden afterwards, 
uh, and people did and I'm sure it was more than it was, was more than you were allowed to but John's favorite things were champagne and smoked salmon so that's what we had <laughs> out in the garden it started raining so they're in the pouring rain under a sun umbrella drinking champagne and and you know what one of the other things I thought he he just he went really suddenly but he'd had heart problems and in the end he he, he got what he wanted no more hospitals no more doctors no more being poked and prodded no more pills and it was peaceful yeah it was peaceful so I take I do take comfort from that and like I say I let people help me uh, and and you know it's good to be independent but you can be too independent and if you keep saying no to people they will stop asking you because they'll think oh she doesn't want any help uh, yeah so I I started I made sure I, I went for walks every day and I, I took photographs of flowers because you know we're getting into spring by then and you know, end of May beginning of June and it was getting sunny and um, I put loads and loads of pictures of flowers, 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 flowers on, on my Instagram. All these close-ups of flowers, all these amazing colours and that sort of um, life, new life and mm -hmm. nature going on around, that helped. And then I got a puppy, <laughs> little Winifred, little Winifred. Winifred's her Sunday name. It's Winnie most of the time, and then she's been naughty. <laughs> How and, did you pick um, her name? I have no idea. <clears throat> I have no, it just came to me. It just kind of suited her. Yeah. Uh, it, old, you know, old-fashioned names are really fashionable at the moment, aren't they? Mm. It just, this hairy little beast. She's so tiny when she came home. So tiny. And I'd forgotten how much work it is to have a puppy. <laughs> it's a ton of work. Um, but she was just delightful and... Uh, yeah, she, she's made a big difference. And uh, and the other thing, that was Stuart and I had committed to writing um, a second book, in a sort of third book in the Jim or Chocolate series. Was it second? I've lost count. And, uh, and we had a deadline because I think we'd done a pre-order or something. And, you know, writing rom-com, writing comedy, writing funny things, it really helped. It really helps in an unexpected way because it forced you, forced me to look for the for the for the sunshine and for the laughter and and joy, you know, joyful. And I have got a lot to be thankful for. I've got a lot of really good friends, really good friends. And yeah. So so so. I mean, it's di different for everybody. One one of the hardest things is the bureaucracy of bereavement. There is so much friggin' paperwork at a time when you really struggle to concentrate on things. And uh, one of the worst things was um, I was told I couldn't drive my car because, not because of the insurance, but because of the road tax was in John's name. So the cars weren't legally drivable. I've been driving for, you know, a couple of weeks. I've never that. heard of this. If I'd had an accident, I wouldn't have been insured. I didn't know it. Trying to sort that out took three months. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, and of course, because it's still locked down, trying to get through to people, trying to get through to the DVLA, the Driving Licence um, Authority, it was a nightmare. And there was so much paperwork. You've got to contact banks and utilities and your 
house insurance and your buildings insurance and you know the tv license had to be done in his you know it's oh just never ending you know it was it was a lot of work yeah (laughs) and so the third book is about becoming a dad right it is funnily enough based on Stu's experiences (laughs) um the baby game yeah and but it's also based on my little nephew Ernie because um he was he's he's a down syndrome little boy so there are quite a lot of um extra things that you have to take into consideration um they have very poor muscle tone when they're born so they can be very floppy which means um swallowing can be a problem so they can't suckle you have to milk has to be expressed and mixed with something to thicken it up so it's gloopy so that they're not going to aspirate it because otherwise it could get liquid in the lungs mm-hmm. and you know just there are lots and lots of things like that. I spent this Christmas when my brother came down they they do something called Makaton sign language with him which is like a sort of baby sign language type thing we did Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer so many times I can <laughs> sign and sing at the same time I'm actually getting really good on colors and animals and <laughs> things like that. So, uh, yeah, my sign language is coming on quite well. <laughs> so we, we had great fun writing this book. So my experiences, my nephew and Stu's experiences, because he's, he's, he's a dad already. I mean, he's got a 16-year-old son and now um, a year-old baby. Mm-hmm. So he, he had you know, lots of sort of funny stories. And Emma told me some funny stories as well. And, you know, the more serious side of things and all that sort of go, goes into the book as well. So we had, we had a lot of fun writing it. Yeah, we really did. Wow. You have traveled so much in your writing career. Can you tell us about what that's like to travel the world and, and meet your fans and just it's, have that incredible experience? Oh, definitely. It's, um, it's quite humbling, actually. Because you, you know, as a writer, you're you, you're working alone ninety percent of the time, and then and then suddenly you're at a book event, and there are people there, you know, queuing up to talk to you, and you're like, what? <laughs> what's what's going on? And you've you've touched their lives sometimes very lightly, and and sometimes quite deeply, and they they've experienced things that you've written about, or something you you've said has touched them in a way. I've actually got one woman who tattooed something I wrote on her leg. And it was a really was big what? tattoo. And I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> what did she tattoo? It was something like, I, I didn't know what life could be until I met you. It, wow. It, it didn't sound very profound there, but it sounded a bit better in the book. But she got this <laughs> huge tattoo. And uh, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's really permanent. <laughs> wow. I travel in my head in my books. In my books, I've been to many other places. But actually going to, um, I, I love going to the States. I've got really good friends there. My, my friend Tonya, whom I met through books, is, uh, lives in El Dorado, Arkansas. And in fact, I'm setting my next book there because I visited her there with her husband a few before lockdown. So my next book will be Set in the Deep South. Y'all. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking forward to doing that. And uh, where else have we been Stu and I have been back to Brazil quite a few times because we're, we're published there. And they're great, great, great people. They hug you so much you think your ribs are going to crack. And they really <laughs> do good hugs there, really good hugs. And uh, we've been to uh, Paris and Lille. Well, of course, we met in Paris, Angelique, mm-hmm. um, in that lovely <laughs> yeah. little, little hotel. <laughs> and where else have we been? Uh, Italy. We went to Rome for a book event. Mm. Um, I 
Ireland, Scotland, several places in Britain. We did uh, Book Bonanza in Denver the first year when it was in Denver. And I've been to events in New York and Orlando. Actually, my very first foreign book event was in um, Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> and that sort of came out because I have rheumatoid arthritis. So sometimes um, getting around isn't very easy. And I'm on a ton of meds and things. And uh, it's, an, it's an autoimmune disease. So basically they treat it a little bit like cancer. And I decided, oh, you know, I can't travel. I can't go anywhere. What if I have a flare up while I'm away? And a friend said to me, uh, well, you know, you, you've got a credit card, you've got travel insurance. What are you worried about? And I thought, oh, yeah, what, what am I worried about? You know, if I'm going to get a flare up, it'll happen wherever I am. So there's a little bit gung ho about it. But I thought, yes, I'm going to do it. I got invited to a book event in Tulsa. And I said, yes, I think they were surprised as I was. And I loved it. <laughs> and I loved it. I really did. Had a really good time there. I met Tonya. And we talked online and, I, and we had this kind of running joke. Uh, I said I'd always wanted to meet a cowboy, a real cowboy. <laughs> and, I was in, and we were in this hotel, which was actually on a, a Cherokee reservation. And this woman was bellowing across the room at me. Um, Y'all seen a cowboy? <laughs> I was being very British going, no, no, I, I don't believe I have seen a cowboy. No, 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 definitely no cowboys here. <laughs> and that was Tanya. <laughs> And, and that was the first time I met her in real life. And um, she's become a real good travel buddy. We've done a few road trips together. We did uh, New York to Orlando and we did Orlando to where she lives in Arkansas. So, so that was great. Oh, I should tell you about one trip. Actually, it was the Denver trip. When um, I arrived with Stuart, we arrived about midnight. That, and uh, there was only a few people in the hotel when we were checking in. And this woman, I, I don't know. Well, she recognized Stuart anyway. And she came over, she, oh, my God, are you Stu Reardon? And I said, oh, yeah, 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 very nice to meet you. And uh, uh, this is my uh, co-author, Jane Harvey Barrick. And she looked at me and she went, oh, hi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's really funny. But, you know, he, he, he kind of lets things like that just wash over him because, you know, I said, you know, do, do you get annoyed being kind of like groped when you go to a book event? And he said, you know, most women are really, really res respectful. And he said, um, and besides, he's worked in factories and things, a lot harder ways of earning a living. So mm. he's really, he's really calm about everything. It takes an awful lot, lot to wind him up. He's just mm -hmm. calm and easygoing. Yeah. And I think that's a choice he's made, actually, because he did get into trouble when he was younger. And um, he made a choice that that wasn't going to that wasn't the path he was going to be on. And he was going to be calm and kind and tolerant. And uh, he is. Wow. So, yeah, we've had some really, really good times um, traveling together and, and, and meeting people. It, it's really it's really hard work, oddly enough. In what way? I think because you have to, like I say, 90 percent of the time I'm in my room by myself just typing and occasionally typing online with Stuart at the same time. And then you go to an event and you've got to talk to people. And you kind of, I feel, almost feel like I should do a song and dance act to make it worth their while to meet me, you know, when they paid <laughs> to travel in a hotel. And I feel like I should just, I should be more than me. So you dig into that part of yourself that's more outgoing and more of a performer and, and become that person for a little while. And because it's not really me, and I am usually quite quiet, 
it's tiring and uh, the, the events we do in France I think are the hardest because you do signing in the morning and have a lunch and sign in the afternoon and have a meal and then they want you to go to the evening event and, and sit at sit a table with some readers and I speak a tiny tiny little bit of French a really really small amount that I did at school so it's really tiring trying to you know think of things to say I mean how many times can you say you know how are you how is the weather you have a very nice dress and at the end I usually just get some photos of Stuart and show them on my phone and, and that seems to go down really well <laughs> I'm curious if you can walk us through your writing process sure do you got kind of go outline break it down into chapters one chapter at a time do you have to actively put a story together or do the characters talk to you? Mostly the characters talk to me. I mean, I've got a file on, on, on my computer with book ideas. It's just called book ideas. And there's about 40 or 50 different things oh in there. Oh my God. Yeah, I mean, I just, I'll never have enough time to write them all. But it's, so it's whoever is shouting loudest, really. And sometimes ideas come out of the blue. Often when I'm out walking my dog, they come to me, something somebody says. I mean, that's the thing with writers. You never know what they're writing down. You never know something you say might be taken down and used in evidence. My friends are in books far more than they know. My husband's in books <laughs> far more than he ever knew. Um, so I, I think the book that I decide to write is the one that starts shouting loudest. And when I start getting scenes in my head, and it'll usually be a couple of um, key phrases or key scenes. And I'll write those down. And I tend to write the prologue and the epilogue at the same time. And then kind of fill in the journey in between. Because by the time I started writing, the plot is fairly solid in my head. But I don't write, I don't write down the whole plot because it's just in, in my mind. So, and, and sometimes characters surprise me and go off in directions I hadn't expected. But because they're not always particularly well behaved, some get a bit wild. So, yeah, the process can be very quick, or sometimes it can be years. I've wanted to write something. I mean, I wrote my first historical romance that I published in October called Lilac Cadillac. Part of it's set in World War Two, and part of it's set in the modern day. And I'd actually been wanting to write it for about four years. I had a publicist for a little while. And one of the characters is 97-year-old, very much based on my mother. And uh, this publicist said to me, oh, nobody's going to want to write a book about an old people's home. And I, uh, and I kind of believed her. I wasn't sure, but I kind of believed But when I wrote it, I loved it. And, it, and it's been really, really well received. Has she not heard of Grace and Frankie? <laughs> exactly and I, I love I love that show I, really, I love that really show yeah it's it's funny but it does deal with some of the some of the things you've got to consider as you get older but yeah so I loved writing about this 97 year old it's kind of based on <laughs> and, and, and it has sold really well so <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad I didn't listen yeah well I'm glad the voices are louder yes. <laughs> than anyone yes. in reality <laughs> yeah but sometimes and, and um, John would get crazy with me sometimes because he'd come into the office and I'd be like, no, don't, don't speak. Don't even speak. And he'd be like, what's going to make you a cup of tea? I'm like, oh, I was in the middle of a sentence then. <laughs> <laughs> this is wild. And, uh, so and then he sort of, st and, and he did learn and he would stand at my shoulder waiting for me to take a break. And then I feel this presence there. <laughs> and 
that would sort of break my concentration as well. So, yeah, I mean, writers can be a bit um, a bit of a tartar like that, you know. Don't speak to me, I'm writing. I'm crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I've I'm been crazy. there, I've had that moment. I know what yeah. you're talking about. But did you ever study writing or did you just always know how? Is it just in your blood? I think it's in my blood, yeah. But do you have family members that were writers? My dad did some writing, but actually um, I'm adopted. So um, I do know I've got some Irish blood in there. So maybe Mm. it's Irish storyteller blood. Maybe that's what it is. Mm. (laughs) I just always loved, loved, I loved reading. Loved reading from a kid. I I read and read and read and read. What are some of your favorite books? Oh my, Jane Austen, of course. (laughs) Love Jane Austen. You know, someone said to me the other day, "Oh, she's she's so proper and prim and proper and and nothing much." I was like, "Have you read these books? Have you read them?" And she was very clear that w- that women's roles were so restricted, and her heroines want to break out of what is expected of them. She talks about adultery. She talks about the slave mm-hmm. trade. She talks about battles again. But you have to look, listen very carefully because it's happening in the background, and it's just so beautifully nuanced. And so she's, she's oh, fabulous, absolutely fabulous. She is my, and always will be my top, top, top favorite writer. Do you reread her books? Again and again and again. And again, favorite? And again and again. Yes, many, many, many times. If I had to do one of those quiz programs where you have to choose a specialist subject, my first choice would be the novels of Jane Austen. And my second choice would be Buffy the TV show. I What's mean, your I, favorite Jane Austen uh, novel? Persuasion. It was finished, but she didn't get to polish it as much as she normally would. So the second half is uh, not as filled out as she would have done. But it's about um, a man and a woman who fall in love when the woman is just, oh, she's 17 or 19, let's say 19. Her family persuade her not to marry this young naval officer who's got no money behind him. Blah, 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 blah. And she meets him again, you know, 10 years later. And everyone's saying she's lost her bloom. She's lost her bloom. And she'll be on the shelf. She's 27. She's on the shelf. He meets her again. And he's still so angry with her that he can't bring himself to realize that she is still the same person. And Because he thinks she was weak to be persuaded mm. not to him. And I love it because it's love second time around and second chances and it coming out how it should. So, yeah, that's my favorite. Yeah. Wow. But if I had to have a favorite Buffy quote. Yes. <laughs> Um, someone says to her, you're the slayer, but we thought you were a myth. And she says, ha ha, you are mistaken. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah, I can quote Austin at you and I can quote Buffy at you. So, you know, take your pick. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. This has been extraordinary. Oh, Angelique, thank you. I really appreciate you asking me. That's a, a really great honor. And I, you know, I hope... You said you you thought I might be able to help other people going through transition. I hope I can. Well, Uh, I think everyone is feeling some level of grief and not been able to see people in hospital who they want to see. And I think it's cruel. cruel. Yeah, I think so many. Yeah, we're living with anxiety as well. Uh, People are far more anxious than they used to be, I think. Yeah, everything's more uncertain. Yeah, it's been very trying for everybody in in different ways. And I, yeah, I just really appreciate you sharing your story. It's, it's kind of helped. I think we have a, we we can choose to be happy. 
so much stuff is thrown at us but if you choose to smile it will help it's it's not always easy and I'm not trying to be trite but if you can choose to be happy then then just do it force yourself force yourself to smile even if you don't feel like it it will help and don't don't put too much pressure on yourself that's the other thing that's been a big learning for me (laughs) oh yeah just let go of the pressure just let it all go yeah Yeah. I mean sometimes I I will just you know I'm fine feeling stressed about something I'll literally sit here going Jane you have no problems no worries you okay you are doing okay and just allowing yourself you know permission to think okay okay I'm okay yeah yeah wow (laughs) and then you know find something to smile about like a little dog doing something crazy (laughs) chasing her own fur balls around the room that that will do it (laughs) (laughs) that's so beautiful (laughs) I wish I could see you and drink champagne with you and give oh, you a hug yes. it was such a pleasure to meet you and you well, love we will. Such... hopefully we will maybe we'll meet in Paris again or oh, well, I, I want to come to where you live because it's heaven I've always wanted to go it's there beautiful. yes yes yeah, so I'm very, I'm very lucky you yeah. are I have appreciation for, for living you know the outdoors I mean I walk every day with my dog and I I, I think because I'm walking I, I take time to see the small things that you see you know, from the pavement, from the sidewalk, you know, take time to, to see, you know, don't just rush and rush all the time. There are things worth seeing. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Yeah. It's true. I, I take the same walk every day, but I see something new and beautiful every time. Yes. The way yes. the snow sparkles. Yeah. The birds flying. They, they've so they've started during I know, they've started singing in a new way so it's it's hopeful yeah. it's like spring is coming yes there's little signs of change all around definitely yeah I mean you, it, it, literally life goes on and you, you you can sink or you can smile and keep on paddling <laughs> yeah and accept help and um, yes definitely say yeah. yes yes so thank you for saying yes today and I'm so happy oh, I met you thank and you. <laughs> I'll definitely stay in touch and okay, yeah, I'm just, lovely. I'm just so filled with gratitude that you've shared your story today and you are very welcome. I hope it you gave you some comfort and I'm yeah. so glad that you have so many fans and friends that reach out and, and are so caring. Yes, you deserve it. You. You're, you're just lucky. lovely. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Jane, for sharing your story. I am deeply inspired by your resilience and by your heart. You can find Jane's website and Instagram in the show notes. I have also included some resources on grief should you need them.